Let us pray. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that we may, with open hearts and minds, hear and receive your word this noonday. We pray, O God, that you will take these lips that are human and use them to bring honor to Christ and to Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen. It is indeed a joy to be back with you today and to have this opportunity to continue in ministry together uh, and to be a part of this great series that you all have offered the city of Birmingham and the state of Alabama and all who would come and all who would hear it, now with even the opportunity to hear around the world via the web. So thank you for this special privilege. It was actually 1977 that I was first in the Church of the Advent. I was here at a wedding for a college friend from Vanderbilt, uh, Francie Siebels and Norris Little. And little did I imagine that I would one day be standing in the pulpit of this great cathedral. It reminds me of hearing Billy Graham in 1976 in the Washington Cathedral uh, in, in, in our nation's capital, the Sunday just before the nation's bicentennial celebration on July 4th. Billy Graham stepped into that massive stone pulpit in that immense sanctuary in our nation's capital, looked across the vast sea of congregants and guests, and said, My, 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 if my Baptist friends could only see me now. <laughs> my sentiments exactly. Our scripture lesson this afternoon comes from John chapter 11. We looked yesterday at the healing of a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. We look now at another miracle, really the greatest miracle of John's gospel. Uh, Selected verses from chapter 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her tears. Whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness is not unto death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go into Judea again. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary sat in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, 
your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, He who is coming into the world. Then Mary, when she came where Jesus was and saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou hearest me always, but I have said this on account of the people standing by, that thou may, they may believe that thou didst send me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound with bandages, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him. And let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Well, yesterday I told you of a scene from King Lear and an interpretation of it by the poet Farmer philosopher Wendell Berry, who spoke here at Samford a few weeks ago. In that scene, old-aged Gloucester is downcast and despairing and about to take his own life. His son, Edgar, does not want his father to so depart this world, and so he does all that he can to prevent it. He dresses as a madman and appears alongside his father, who asks him to lead him to the edge of a cliff. Uh, Edgar does this, though it's not really a cliff that he has placed his father at. His father bids goodbye to the world, blesses his son Edgar, and then, as Shakespeare's instructions say, falls forward and swoons. Actually, he only falls a few feet and is rendered unconscious. When he awakens, Edgar comes along again, this time in the guise of an anonymous passerby, 
and says to old Gloucester, thinking he has survived this vast fall off a cliff, Thy life's a miracle. Speak yet again. I don't know, maybe that's why I'm here today. Not really. Thy life's a miracle. Speak yet again. Calls Gloucester, as Wendell Berry says, back into the properly subordinated human life of grief and joy where change and redemption are possible. Barry goes on to say, to treat life as less than a miracle is to give up on it. And it's that miracle of life, life entwined with the living God in Jesus Christ that we're focusing on these several days. Uh, The miracle that God gives us in His Son and these two specific examples of that manifestation in John's Gospel. Some years ago, the English writer G.K. Chesterton was at a street corner and a reporter recognized him and came up and said, Sir, I understand you have become a Christian. Might I ask you a question? He said, Well, certainly. He said, If the risen Christ suddenly appeared at this very moment and stood behind you, what would you do? Chesterton looked him squarely in the eye and said, He is. And that's our good news. He is. He is risen. He is with us. He is with us in all that we face in life. And what do we do with that fact? Well, here's what Jesus does. Standing at the house of death, Before a massive tomb that goes down into the subterranean caverns of the earth, he calls forth life. This is the final and greatest miracle of the seven recorded in John's Gospel. The focus is not upon Lazarus, really, but upon Jesus himself and his own coming, death and life. Jesus orders the stone rolled back. And the putrid odor of four-day-old flesh, decaying in the dry depths of a Middle Eastern tomb, come wafting forth so that if you look at some of the medieval paintings, the people uh, grab their mouths and cover their their faces uh, from the stench. Uh, King James has a wonderful rendering of this passage when it says, the, the sister's objection, but he stinketh. And in the midst of that awful setting, Jesus commands, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man comes. And then Jesus tells us what we are to do. Unbind him and let him go. This 11th chapter of John is the central chapter of this gospel. It's the hinge, as it were. It's it's literally the middle. Uh, Ten chapters before, ten chapters after. It's the turning point in the story. As from this point forward, Jesus is moving into his final events in Jerusalem. From this point forward, Jesus will enter into the city on a donkey to the accolades of Hosanna. And then walk out under the heavy wood of a cross to his own death. 
It is because of this event, John's Gospel uniquely tells us, that the crowd was so vast on Palm Sunday. It was because they heard that he had performed this sign and raised Lazarus from the dead that the crowd went to meet Jesus, the evangelist tells us. This last week in Jesus' life fills literally half of the gospel book of John and has this massive central message, I am resurrection and life, in a way that transcends time and space. It is found in me, not only in the there and then, but in the here and now. It is the command to believe. I am the resurrection and the life. It is the command to do. Unbind him and let him go. Unbind all those who are tied up and tied down, caught in some vast web of destructiveness. All those caught in some subtle addiction. All those caught in some relational cul-de-sac. Removed from the joys of life. Whose health or vocational struggle is immense and from which they see no release. Unbind them and let them go, Jesus says. You, the community of Jesus, go all the way through this dark journey. These 40 days, all the way down and then all the way up. Experience what you can of his passion, the depth of his love, and then unbind those who are bound. The central text that comes around every year for the Jewish High Holy Day of Yom Kippur is the story of the binding of Isaac. How Abraham is commanded to take his own son up the mountain and tie him up and place him on an altar and offer him in sacrifice. It's a horrendous passage. And Abraham obeys. Not knowing how this will be resolved, but only trusting that some way, somehow, God is going to provide a way. And Abraham gets so far as to have the knife raised before his arm is stilled. And God points him to a ram caught in a thicket. Now, in sparing all his sons and daughters, God will provide for the great once and for all time sacrificial lamb of his own son. For God so loved the world that he gave. He is bound that we might be released. John says that Jesus worked many miracles that are not recorded in his book. And and actually in his book, he only records seven. But each of them very deliberate and intentionally styled. And progressively moving from the casual to this massive miracle. Uh, The first one you remember, the changing of water to wine at a wedding in Cana. Almost a little slight party trick. And then he healed the nobleman's son. Then he restored to vigor a lame man at a pool that we looked at yesterday. Then he fed 5,000. Then he walked on the water. Then he gave new eyes to a blind man. And then this dramatic seventh miracle, he restored his dead friend Lazarus to life. Mary and Martha have sent word that his friend, their brother, is ill and 
Jesus responds unusually, sort of philosophically, saying, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then, curiously, Jesus doesn't move, doesn't head out and go to them at that point, but waits for two more days. Timing is key in all of this, particularly as John gives us his account. He's very deliberate now. At Cana, he had told his mother when, you know, she told him there was a problem with the wine and he needed to fix it. He said, my time is not yet come. Throughout, Jesus is in control of his time and his actions. And all that will unfold in Holy Week does not come because he's backed into a corner or finds himself up against a wall, but because Jesus deliberately decides when the time is right for all to take place. This final miracle sign will, he says, in fact, actually glorify the Son of God through it. So Jesus waits. And then he tells his disciples, let's go to Judea again. And they fearfully react. Are you crazy? Don't you know they're out to kill you? Jesus tells them bluntly, Lazarus is dead. And then death pervades more and more as they move toward Bethany and discover that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. You know, try as we might in our death-denying culture. We cannot wipe it out. We cannot sweeten it with soft music and flowers. Even the famous southern funeral casseroles have their limits. The reality of death is harsh and bitter and ugly and, well, lifeless. One Sunday evening in Kentucky, in my former congregation, we were completing a dinner program and a lady rang the church and said that her neighbor, one of the church members, uh, who had not been seen out of her apartment since the previous Thursday, had been found dead. Well, I immediately rushed over. Now, I have been privileged to be with a number of people at the time or shortly after their deaths. Very precious moments. But I had never before come upon a corpse bloated, a woman lying in her nightgown that had been there for four days. It was an ugly and noxious sight. Death is horrible. Even so, both these sisters recognize in their chiding of Jesus, if you'd been here, it could have been different. If it could have been here, you could have spared our brother. But they both say, and nevertheless, even now, At which she points Jesus to Martha. Says, your brother will rise again at the resurrection. And she gives a sort of stock Jewish Sunday school answer. Well, yes, of course, at the last day when all is said and done, he will rise. Jesus, however, transforms that traditional stock answer. And makes it personal and immediate. Here and now in himself. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And 
She responds, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. With that assurance and that affirmation, they march forward toward the house of death where Sister Mary meets them along the way and makes a similar protestation if you'd been here. And yet even now, even now, all this grief, all this sorrow is weighing heavily upon Jesus. He is deeply disturbed in spirit and we read Jesus wept. The shortest, most poignant verse in the Bible. Jesus wept for his friend, for the family, for the community in their loss. But Jesus weeps for much more. Jesus weeps for a world caught up in patterns of death. For a world that does not know the things that make for peace. For a world that again and again repeats cycles of destruction and violence. For a world where teenagers and young parents die suddenly before their time. For a world that slays its best and its brightest, its liberators, its Gandhis and Kings and Kennedys and Sadats and Rabins. A world that bombs right here in our own city four little black girls at church. He weeps for us who read his teachings and and claim his lordship and yet do not get loose of the grave clothes that are tying us up. William James, the philosopher, said in a lecture at Columbia University once that our modern world may be characterized by a German word called Zerreisenheist, which means torn apartness. That Jesus wept that day, and this day, tells us that we have no vague, remote God far off in the heavens, but we have one who comes among us, who knows us intimately, inside and out. One who willingly takes upon himself the suffering of our torn apartness. One who will bear it all for us and our salvation. With his stripes, we are healed. In the Harry Potter stories by J.K. Rowling, there is a scene where the evil Lord Voldemort tries to attack and kill Harry, but somehow he can't reach him. There's this protective bubble, as it were, around Harry, and and Harry doesn't understand why Voldemort was not able to harm him, and so he goes to his great mentor and and asks why, why this was the case. And he tells him, your mother died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. To have been loved so deeply will protect us forever. So Jesus stands there at the cemetery before the tomb and commands Lazarus come out. Some smirked. Others shook their heads, uh, whispering, he's really lost it. 
But Jesus has not lost his mind in grief. Jesus has found his voice in divine power, shattering the boundary between life and death. He calls forth across the abyss, and the dead man comes forth to life. At the creation, God called the universe into being. At the tomb, Jesus spoke death into life. Calling Lazarus back into the properly subordinated human life of grief and joy. Where change and redemption are possible. And finally, that command for you and for me. Unbind him, unbind her, and let them go. There's someone you know who needs you to do that for them. To unwrap the grave clothings that they are tied up in. It's not for you to fix them. Not your place to be a little God to them. Not yours to resurrect them. God will take care of the life-giving. But you can release them. You can unbind them and receive them back. Jesus' cross will teach us that God's love does not do away with conflict and suffering and tragedy. His cross is the thing that makes it possible for us to bear it, to see it, to share it, to understand it, and to pass through it. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the essence of the passion. Thy life's a miracle. Speak yet again. Amen. Let us pray. Speak yet again, O Lord. Your word of healing and of hope. Speak to us your purpose and meaning in the unfolding of our days and years. Speak, and as we make our way as disciples through Lent, to the death of the cross and the height of the resurrection, speak yet again, and give us grace to believe and to unbind those people and structures that are bound. You, O Lord, are our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? You, O Lord, are the stronghold of our life. Of whom shall we be afraid? We believe. We shall see your goodness in the land of the living. Through Jesus Christ, our strong Redeemer. Amen. And now, dear friends, go forth into God's world in peace. Be of good courage. Hold fast that which is good. Render to no one evil for evil. Support the weak. Help the afflicted. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and be at work in your life this day and forevermore. Amen.